I've just brought my, my water up, and there's wine under here. I've never, um, <laughs> I've never given a presentation with bottles of wine, so that's, that's great. I shan't, I shan't prevail myself of it. Uh, so great, great to see you all here, and thank you for the invitation to come and share some of the experience that I've had at NICE and before. It's always slightly out of your comfort zone talking to a different group of people, a uh, different, different tribe, if you like, but I'm sure there's lots of things in common. So how did I get interested in evidence-based medicine? Just, just to set the scene a little bit, I did one of my junior doctor jobs in um, an orthopedic unit, and I worked for three different orthopedic surgeons at the same time. And they all said they were evidence-based. They all said they read the research, but they all wanted different things. So I had these little cards in my white coat. This consultant wants this, and that one wants that, and, and that one wants the other. And I just thought there has to be a better way of getting some consensus around what this evidence means. So that's, that really is part of the trigger of why I ended up having a career in evidence-based medicine. And so I'm going to share some of my experience and a lot about what happens at NICE, and hopefully it resonates just starting with a brief bit of history, from the medical perspective, the first randomized controlled trial was carried out by an Edinburgh physician back in 1747. In those days, people thought scurvy was all about putrefaction and that acids were what you needed to sort it out. I know scurvy is not a big deal for vets, is it? Most animals don't need vitamin C, but it's a problem for us human beings so he did a randomized controlled trial. He had N of 12, which I don't think we'd, we'd uh, approve of these days. And he had two in each of his six groups. So two sailors in each group. And uh, that's, you, you can read the list. And it was, it was successful. After a few days, he began to see improvement in the oranges and lemons group. And eventually, there was a bit of improvement in the cider group, too. I didn't know there was vitamin C in cider, but there must be. So that was his first experiment. But good old medical profession weren't terribly convinced. Um, and he managed to convince the Navy before the other medics. And eventually, the Navy decided they would introduce lemons to their routine diet for sailors important point out of all this is it takes time for people to be convinced of the evidence. And if you look, he did his work in 1747, but the Navy didn't take any action until 1794. And we still see that challenge. It's still that translation challenge from research to actual change in practice. That's one of the things that uh, I've been addressing over my years at NICE. So if that was the first randomized control trial, it took, it took even longer for trials and testing to become routine practice in medicine. It wasn't until the mid-20th century. And Archie Cochrane, who I'm sure you know, because I think you all know about the Cochrane and systematic reviews, he was very critical of the medical profession back in 1974. He wrote a little book and he said, it's a great criticism of our profession that we've not organized a critical summary of all relevant randomized controlled trials. He was also an Edinburgh physician. Again, a time delay. He said that in 1974, the Cochrane collaboration wasn't established until 1992. Um, and another Edinburgh connection. I was actually working in Edinburgh at the university at the point that the Cochrane collaboration was started up. So I had the opportunity to build on my experience as a young medic 
to get involved in the Cochrane work around vascular disease here in Edinburgh. So that's a sort of very slow process, isn't it? A very slow journey. And systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials are an absolutely essential step in understanding what the evidence says. But most systematic reviews are entirely objective. They say what the evidence says in a really useful summary. They don't go the next step of saying, and this now means you should do X or Y. They don't give recommendations for practice. So building on the reviews began a culture of guidelines which do set out clear recommendations for practice. And building on, again, the Cochrane work, an international collaboration called AGREE, um, they set out to establish what was the key features of a good guideline, and they set these features, scope and purpose, involving stakeholders, being rigorous, being clear in your presentation, making sure they're applicable, and making sure they're independent. So all that was going on, and NICE was launched to build on all of that work in 1999. We were the product of a Labour government. Frank Dobson took responsibility for launching NICE, and quite remarkably, we're still here <laughs> in a conservative government. So the aim of NICE was to standardize practice. It felt there was too much variation, and patients don't like what they call a postcode lottery, but also to, up, to stimulate the uptake of new technologies, to make things that are effective and cost-effective more visible and clearly and robustly assessed. Doctors can be quite conservative, and if they get industry representatives pitching up, selling their new products, have become naturally quite cautious and quite suspicious. So in a medical world, a body that does an independent assessment and says what should and shouldn't be used is quite a valuable thing. NICE as, a, as a, an organisation is a, a non-departmental public body. Some people would say that's a quango, but... We, we are an arm's length body from government, funded largely by the government, and they give us most of our work program. But having done that, all our work is independent and not interfered with by government or government ministers. So that, that was nice, 1999, but we weren't starting from scratch. There was all this work ongoing, particularly in royal colleges, some royal colleges, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, College of Physicians particularly, were already doing work around developing guidelines. They had already felt that it was really important for their profession that they had some advice and some standard practice to be following. So we could build on that without too much difficulty. Interestingly, psychiatrists had no culture of guidelines. We started from scratch but they very much relished them. It sort of raised the status of psychiatry by having some clear advice around what should and shouldn't happen. <clears throat> so I, I wasn't appointed in 1999, but 2001, I was appointed at NICE to set up the new clinical guidelines program. And we needed to be clear about our principles, and we needed a clear process. So on the left are the principles that we decided we needed that actually applies to all NICE's work. And it's in line with those agree criteria that I described. It includes looking at all the evidence, looking at effectiveness, safety, and cost, 
cost is the difficult bit, involving experts, involving patients and the public, and the bit in red, independent advisory committees. In terms of our credibility, that's absolutely vital. If it were just a little team sitting in the back room of the office in London writing this stuff, I don't think it would go down well with clinical colleagues. You need to consult with stakeholders. It's always hard doing things at a national level. You don't necessarily have the buy-in. And having a consultation so that all people with an interest are able to contribute makes a big difference. We need to review and update, and we need an open and transparent process. And we, indeed, we have all our meetings in public. A bit of a logistical challenge, but we do. So that's the principles. Um, but we also needed a process because inevitably setting this sort of stuff at a national level is going to be challenged by some groups be that professional groups the industry patients so we have a very clear process set out on the website which we also consult on and that includes key stages of getting the topics scoping out what that means reviewing the evidence consulting and confirming and publishing for a clinical guideline that process takes about two years. It's not quick. So that, that's the process, and I've been asked to talk about the pitfalls, and uh, lots to say in terms of the pitfalls. Where, where shall I start? Let's start with money. I thought that would be a good place to start, because it's quite a practical thing to think about. How much are we going to fund centrally? How much are we going to rely on the goodwill of people who are enthusiastic and want to support all of this, all of this work? In terms of the Cochrane collaboration, I think you know a bit about Cochrane. Cochrane relies still on the goodwill of enthusiastic individuals to do the scrutiny and review and writing of the, of the reviews. But there is still a cost to Cochrane. There's a lot of admin costs that goes on. There's technical costs, publishing costs, and quality assurance. So there's obviously quite a bit of cost around that. It's whether you pay for your experts or not. When NICE started, we were a bit behind what was going on in Scotland. Scotland has a guidelines network, the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network, where they always relied on volunteer clinicians to do the reviewing of the evidence. NICE decided that that probably wasn't consistent enough. Unless you really, really train people hard, it, it, we felt we needed to have professional reviewers who we would pay and train. It also means we could keep to time. You're not reliant on volunteers to do the work. The expert input is still important though because although they're not doing the day-to-day -day reviewing for us we need people to volunteer and come and sit on those independent committees in the NHS certainly in in staff working in hospitals there's an expectation that working for NICE is a good thing to do and doctors nurses will be freed up to come and sit on our committees for a couple of years not quite the same in general practice we have to pay locum fees but there is that expectation that it's a good thing to do so how much does it cost to do one of these guidelines that takes two years? It's not cheap. It's probably the gold standard that we follow at NICE, and it's about, it's about a quarter of a million to produce a guideline. So when I say 
the bit about translating the evidence, getting it into practice, being key. It really, really is, because otherwise we've wasted a lot of money in doing all this work and developing a beautiful guideline. <clears throat> so another pitfall, conflict of interest. It's sometimes linked with money and sometimes it's not. And experts in guideline development methodology would argue that conflicts of interest can be the most important thing in developing a guideline because they can bias it and they can derail support for getting the guideline into practice at the end of the day. We've done an awful lot of work both nationally and with international partners around conflicts of interest. And the nub of a conflict of interest is that a person's judgment might be biased by some other interest they have. And that interest might be potential, it may be actual, but it may also be perceived, and the perception really is all. People might not be biased, but if others perceive there to be a bias, that's enough to be a problem. And we sometimes talk about the Daily Mail test. Would the Daily Mail think this was a problem and be complaining about it? I guess that's less of a, less of a problem for you, but we do have to worry about the Daily Mail. Often, often the conflicts relate to interest in the pharmaceutical industry, tobacco companies sometimes for our public health work. But the whole issue of conflicts of interest has been recently really brought to the fore by the British Medical Journal, who've highlighted a lot of potential conflicts, some of which has been around food industry and recommendations around sugar and all those sorts of things. So it's quite a big deal in my world at the moment. We have a document setting out how we manage conflicts of interest. There's two stages, declare it and then decide if it's a potential conflict or not. Um, there are personal and non-personal, financial, non-financial, and financial is, is any sort of interest you might have that relates to payments, research grants, etc. Specific interest is where it's an interest about the topic under consideration. I'm trying to, to, to illustrate that, um, somebody might be getting money from Pfizer to do research on a particular drug for condition B, and the guidelines looking at completely different condition, condition A. So is that a conflict or not? This is often not very, not very easy to determine. So part of all of this goes back to, is that a perceived conflict because they're getting money from Pfizer for this work and it's not actually part of what they're talking about here? Tricky. And the personal non-financial interest relates to having, having a clear opinion about something, which you might think is important on a guideline group, but... So, if you work at NICE, the bar for having any potential conflicts is very low. People have to sell any shares in healthcare industries when they come and work for NICE, for instance. If you're on a committee, we have to look to all sorts of other things, like work being funded by industry, private work. There's a, a difficult one to sort out, because if we're looking at a new surgical technique, often it's used in private practice, and the only people who are using those new surgical techniques are private practitioners. And we therefore need to know what they think about it. But they inevitably have a conflict, they have a vested interest. So our compromise is to hear and listen to what they have to say, but to then make sure they're not in the room when any recommendations are being made for the guideline. And the bit about... 
and interests that relate to an opinion on the matters under consideration. That's a particular issue when we are selecting a chair for an independent committee. Sometimes it's tempting to think we need the expert, we need the eminent professor who's done lots of research in this area to chair this committee because we know everybody will look to them. But they inevitably are coming with prior preconceived ideas about what it all means and what they want the guideline to say. So pros and cons to whether you involve that person as a chair or not. And with the recent reflections on conflicts, it's been decided that you need a neutral chair, a chair who clearly doesn't have any preconceived ideas, who will make sure they listen to everybody in the room and draw on their views. And it's not to say that the eminent professor couldn't do that either, but the perception is that they might not be. And if you have, if you have more junior members of staff on a committee, if you have patients, they will really, really feel quite intimidated by the eminent professor. And if you think about this, it's quite a far cry from, at least the world when I was a medical student, when we all went to eminent professors' medical textbooks. That's what we read. And there was nothing, nothing wrong with that. It was a great experience. But if you're doing an independent assessment of the evidence and working out what it means, we need to have a more objective perspective I teach medical students, and I, and I always ask them, do they use nice guidelines? And they, they absolutely do. It's a core part of their learning and studying now. We've produced about 250 clinical guidelines, so it very much does in, underpin what they think about the management of different conditions. So I might have given you a bit of a difficult world in terms of that managing conflicts of interest, because clinicians are active researchers, they have interest in their subject matter, they want to, to drive forward improvements. So how do we actually get support from clinicians? How do we get them to be involved with all those requirements being put in place? Um, what are the incentives to take part? Well, it's not being paid to sit on a committee. There is something about influence. People do want to feel they're making a difference. In the medical world, you get clinical professional development points. You can pick a box around revalidation and keeping up to date. And there is this lovely system in medicine of um, consultant clinical excellence awards. I don't know if you've heard of that, but if you can write on your application that you've been involved in a national process, you're more likely to get a clinical excellence award, which does mean more money, more pay increase. So there is an incentive. Despite all that, you've got to handle your conflicts of interest. You can't have been involved in research funding and all the rest of it. There is an incentive. Um, I've talked about the role of the chair. And it really is important that we get input and buy-in from clinicians. Because if the guideline is going to have that traction at the end, we need people to see it as a credible piece of work. We've listened to the right professional groups and that people see what we've produced as guidelines, not tram lines. Um, just just to, to reflect that, clinicians don't like to think that guidelines tell them what to do. And yet they do. So lots of junior doctors particularly really, really want to be supported by a guideline. But the bit about not a tram line is that they don't apply to every patient in front of you. They are there for doctors to refer to, 
and indeed the, they should refer to what the guideline says, but there are lots of scenarios where they are not, they are not going to be applicable. And that's okay as long as that's documented. Move, move on, a few more pitfalls. I've talked about people. There's also problems with the evidence, and this is probably more familiar to, to, to work that you've already been doing. The evidence is inherently uncertain. One of my favourite quotes. It's not black and white. It would all be easy if it was, wouldn't it? I wouldn't need to be putting together committees. So the evidence is uncertain. Often there's not enough of it. We did a whole guideline on preoperative tests. So ne next time you, you, you are unfortunate enough to have to go and have a bit of surgery, <clears throat> there was no published research evidence on preoperative testing. We had to put together a formal consensus process to work out what tests should be done for which patients before having surgery. There might not be, be enough evidence, it might be poor quality, it might be conflicting, and it might not be covering the areas you want it to cover. For instance, we might be doing a guideline on an elderly population, and there's no research often in an elderly population. We might only have case control studies, there's no randomized controlled trials. You know, there's lots, lots, of, uh, lots of problems with the evidence, so we do rely a lot on formal and informal consensus. In terms of the type of evidence, um, this came to a fore when we were developing a guideline on risk of breast cancer, familial breast cancer. And uh, I ended up in this rather surreal meeting in Oxford with three knights of the realm and a dame, it, uh, was, uh, one, of, one of whom was Sir Michael Rawlins, who's referenced on the right here. Uh, another one was Sir Richard Peter, who did all the work on risk of smoking. And uh, it, it was challenging us in terms of use of randomized controlled trials. And as a result, there's this lovely quote from Michael Rawlins, hierarchies are illusory tools for assessing evidence. They should be replaced by a diversity of approaches that involves analyzing the totality of the evidence base. That doesn't mean randomized controls aren't important. That doesn't mean systematic reviews aren't important. But it does mean that you shouldn't just look at those when you're developing a guideline, at least. When you're developing a guideline, you might very well need the cohort study, and it's the cohort study that tells you actually what are the side effects and the risk in the longer term that you don't get from randomized control trials. And as a result of that conversation, the surreal conversation, it was the end of us saying we had a formal hierarchy because before that there was an approach for efficient use of resources that was to say if we've got a really good systematic review in this area we'll stop we won't look at all those other things now we do we need to look at all parts of the evidence to make sure we've got a comprehensive overview one of the most controversial aspects of NICE's work is cost effectiveness and I'm not really going to talk about that much because you can do a guideline perfectly well without looking at cost effectiveness and value for money but it is important in the context of the health service in terms of using money efficiently. And we use something called the quality, the quality adjusted life year. And we look at how much people are prepared to pay for an increase in, in a quality. And we, this slide just illustrates that this again isn't black and white. There isn't a fixed threshold. There's always uncertainties and judgments. 
although generally if things cost more than £30,000 per quarterly, we say no. The cost bit is particularly sensitive with the media, and the media is a pitfall, if you like, that NICE has had to deal with quite a lot over the years. Probably less an issue for, for, for vets, but it is when you're working in a national organisation like NICE. And more recently, they've, they've been a little bit more sympathetic as pressures on the funding of the health service are, are clearer, but it's always difficult to predict what they're going to say. Charter for promiscuity... That was a guideline on um, long-acting reversible contraception, which in fact has done great things for reducing teenage pregnancies, but Charter for Promiscuity was their headline. <clears throat> ah, there we go. <laughs> we did a great guideline. We did a great guideline, I thought, on support for, um, for, for on antenatal care, which had a small bit about teenage mothers, teenage women, girls who were pregnant. And that was the bit that got picked up, and there was me on the breakfast program having to talk about gym slip mothers to use their words anyway that's my world another 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 potential pitfall although it's often a really good thing for nice but it's how do you engage patients i guess you wouldn't have to be talking to your patients but your patients have owners in the health world co-production is the mantra Everything we do, we should be doing jointly with patients and the public. And that, in a nice sense, is about helping us identify the evidence, making sure the outcomes that we're looking at actually matter to patients, because you'd be surprised. Often the research hasn't really bothered to ask the patients what matters to them. Might be measuring changes on a, on a scan. <clears throat> Might be completely getting the perspective of the patient wrong, and we need to check that. We involve them on the committees, and we really need their support for uptake. So mostly it's all really positive, but there are lots of patient groups who also have a lobbying role. They have their own interests. If you've got, <clears throat> if you've got a cancer charity, they very much want to make sure their cancer drugs are approved. And Patient groups can, can be funded, some of them are funded quite a bit, by big pharma, which I mean drug companies, not farmers, and they, they can be very unobjective. So we do try to, in, well, we, we always involve the patient groups, but on our committees we try to get what I call real patients rather than professional patients from the, uh, from the charities. So what about technological pitfalls? Just a a brief nod to some of the technical challenges as it keeps changing. I think back to 1999, the IT we were all using was quite different, wasn't it? And NICE's guidelines were all paper things in those days. We don't publish any guidelines on paper now. And in terms of developments for guideline, guideline work, we're probably going to move at some point in the future to, to text mining, an automatic process for sifting and searching the evidence rather than the more laborious searching and individuals going through it. We've put in place specific technology to let different people on committees review documents to edit so it's all managed and confidential, managing references, thousands and thousands of references, 
and a way of easily linking the evidence to the recommendations, to forest plots, etc., etc. So there's stuff around guidance development, but also how we get the information out to audiences. As I said before, it's no longer sending out a bit of paper. We rely a lot on what it looks like on the web. The picture on the right is, is a map. We've got so many guidelines. We map it all together to, to help people find the right bits. Of course, people use mobile apps. So what does that mean? How do you keep your apps up to date? Third parties in, in, in medicine, healthcare, there are lots of companies who provide decision support systems. We need them to be basing what they do on nice guidance, and indeed they, they want to be doing that too. So how do we syndicate the data? Can we do that automatically? And we haven't found anything off the shelf in terms of technology to, to support this. We've had to do a lot of IT work ourselves. <clears throat> and thinking about the parallel with, with Cochrane, when they developed RevMan years ago, that was done as a bespoke piece of work. It, it's not an area where there's enough commercial interest to be able to go and get off-the-shelf stuff. Keeping it all up to date is now one of our, our biggest headaches. Overall, in terms of, in terms of guidelines that cover new drugs, etc., there are well over a thousand. But of long bits of clinical guidelines, there are about 260 plus. So it's a really big job to keep those up to date and to be credible. They have to be up to date, don't they? And to do that, we need to have staff who are going to keep searching through the literature, sifting it, talking to clinicians to check whether it has any impact on the recommendations. And if it does, have we got enough capacity to put the committee back in place to review it, to determine what it means? And then ongoing support to make sure people are aware it's been updated to reinforce the impact of any new recommendations. It's a massive piece of work it is vital for the credibility of the guidelines so in terms of the final the final pitfall it's the bit about does anybody use it and we did we did a survey of clinicians and managers and they were thinking about implementing in this in this context new things so it's not just saying, do I refer to a guideline? It's here's a guideline and there's a new recommendation. Can I get it into practice? Takes us back to the beginning and James Lind and his lemons and, lemons and limes. The main problem, interestingly, was getting consensus from your colleagues. We've checked this out more recently and that's still what people say. I can't get people to agree with me. How do you actually convince others? Of course, there are also other more obvious things like I haven't got the time, I haven't got the equipment, I haven't got the money, I haven't been trained. So there's all sorts of other pitfalls as well. But change is always difficult. It's not just having a nice guideline that's difficult. Changing practice is a challenge. We've addressed that at NICE by having an implementation strategy, which doesn't mean we go out and we do the implementation and we pay for the equipment, but it does mean that we make sure our guidance is, is, is fit for purpose, that we've done a lot around dissemination, that we try and motivate people to make changes 
and we do that at a national level by working with other organisations. So it's levers in the system, which you will have as well, I'm sure. It's things around professional regulation, professional education and training. Inspection, there's a, there's a process of inspecting healthcare organisations and they look to be inspecting against what we've said. Where possible, we provide some practical support and we do try and look regularly, now every six months, at the impact that our guidance is having. In case you're wondering, the, the, the chap on the right is, is Richard Hooker. That's him sitting outside Exeter Cathedral. And his quote that I like is, change is not made without inconvenience, even from worse to better. I think that's the nub of it, isn't it? Everybody's working on their day-to-day -day stuff, and it's quite easy, and that's what you do, and you might be really busy doing it. So to change and do something else convince your colleagues of the benefits isn't straightforward. So I've spent a lot of time on the pitfalls. Are there any benefits? Well, there are. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I will finish on the positive note. <clears throat> and, and key to all of that is, is it changing practice? I mentioned just now we produce an uptake and impact report. We do that now every six months. There is limited data and we don't have a budget to collect that data. So again, it's reliant on other partner organizations. But just to illustrate some of the data we've collected, this was from a guideline <clears throat> on alcohol use disorders. And there was an audit carried out by Alcohol Research UK, 2006-2011. <clears throat> and it's not perfect adherence to the guideline. But as I said before, their guidelines not tram lines. So there's always going to be less than 100% adherence. <clears throat> but it's been a re-audit, a re-measuring, and measurement drives change. When people look at what their performance levels are, it very much stimulates improvement. <clears throat> there is quite a, quite a historical culture of carrying out audits across the NHS. And doctors are by definition... <laughs> They tend to be competitive individuals who like to be better than their colleagues. So if you show them data and they don't think they're doing as well as their peers, it does trigger a change. Um, hopefully you can see the lines on here. This case, the, these are various different bits of independent research looking at the assessment of risk of venous thromboembolism. There was a big focus on this. You probably saw it in the media and compounded with nice guidelines, there was a change in practice. So my final slide, just to give hopefully a few minutes for questions, one slide summing up the benefits. I would say the first benefit is that individual practitioners don't need to assess all the research evidence themselves. It's actually impossible to do that. There are huge amounts of new research. <clears throat> there is the General Medical Council says there's a duty, of, duty on doctors to keep themselves up to date. And it's just, not, it's just not practical to do that as an individual. Even if you read all the new publications, you wouldn't have read everything and you would really, really struggle to put it in the context of everything that's gone before. So at the very least, systematic reviews and guidelines do that job for people. It provides, if it's done well a robust resource to inform and standardized, standardized practice. 
patients, people don't like what's called the postcode lottery. They don't like variations in care. Support for malpractice claims. <laughs> that that sounds, a bit, sounds a bit negative, but it's a really important defense. If you can say, I followed what was in the guideline, or I looked at what was in the guideline, but it didn't apply because X, Y, or Z, or the patient chose not to have this. If that's all documented and you've clearly referred to up-to-date advice, it's a really important part of showing that you're performing well. Better value for money, that's a particular uh, nice aspect because of, of cost-effectiveness. And the most important aim, obviously, is improved care for patients. Nice guidelines have been responsible for driving up quality of care by highlighting what best practice is. By all the various support and measures that we've put in place, we really have seen an improvement in care. So I'm going to stop there, and hopefully there'll be time for a few questions. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.